This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is number 280, Pete Incavelia. But Matt, before we get into this card, I think that we have some follow-up from previous episodes. Yeah, I see here that we have some follow-up about the Burt Blylevin episode. I believe this is referring to looking at the picture from, from Burt from the 80s and trying to place which actor he looked like. The 1988 Tops HQ got a text message uh, about a Burt Blylevin lookalike. And I've sent you a link to actor Richard Jordan. Okay, I'm pulling this up here, and I had a kind of pretty poor guess of William Frakes, but it looks like the listener, Mike H., has sent a link to Richard Jordan. It looks very close to Bert. Tell us a little bit about Richard Jordan here, David. Richard Jordan was a <laughs> an actor, roles in many films and also on Broadway. I think that one of the picture that we have here is from a movie called Raise the Titanic. I have never seen this movie. He has a recognizable face and was in a lot of famous films. He was in Gettysburg and The Hunt for Red October. Hmm. And I know that I've seen him in Dune. He was Duncan hmm. Idaho in Dune. Thank you to Mike H. for that. We will go ahead and move into uh, our card for this week. So Pete Cavilia, outfielder for the Rangers in 1987. And it was, again, it's card 280. And David, Pete Incavilia has been a recurring character so far in the 1988 Tops podcast. I feel like we've said his name countless times, but if you could, could you help run down his appearances so far? Yeah, I think Pete might end up being the wacky neighbor character of this. He might, he could end up being, <laughs> he could be our Urkel, <laughs> where he ends up taking over the show and this just becomes. An uh, Incavilia cast. Uh, I'd love that. I would love that. He was the namesake of a white denim song, an, an instrumental white denim song called Incavilia. He played for the Chibalote Marines, mm. and he played with Lenny Dykstra on the 1993 Phillies. And if you'll recall, with Lenny Dykstra's fantastic business plan, Pete Incavilia was quoted as saying, Something to the effect of it's the best idea he's ever heard. <laughs> so, Pete Cavilia, maybe I wouldn't trust his business acumen, but he, I guess, is a loyal friend to his, his friend Lenny. I hope he did not take Lenny's advice on anything. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, his nickname was Inky. Why, why did we pick him this week? I think Pete Incavilia, aside from... The many times that his name has come up in, on the podcast, I th think he's interesting for a few reasons. One, Pete Incavilia has records in college baseball that have been called unbreakable. He had an amazing college career at Oklahoma State University. This also led to Pete being drafted into the major leagues and the creation of something called the Incavilia rule. So he was at one point immortalized in a Major League Baseball rule about player transfers and trades. And finally, and maybe most importantly, the way that I remember Pete Incavilia as is an all-or-nothing guy. 
you were either going to get a 450-foot home run or a strikeout. And he <laughs> did a lot of both. And so Incavilia as a player is one of these three true outcomes guys, which is a, a phrase meaning basically the true outcomes are in the battle between the pitcher and the batter. And there's no defense involved in these. So you're either going to get a strikeout, a walk, or a home run. And Pete Incavilli is one of those guys with a very high percentage of those all-or-nothing results. Great. So we will dig into those in just a second. First, let's go to the card itself. So looking at the front of the card. And Pete's got a, let's say he's centered in the card in a batting stance. He's a right-handed batter. He's looking very focused. This does have the look of spring training because there's a crowd behind him, but it's pretty small. And you can, in fact, see someone behind him, like with his legs crossed or with her Yeah, legs you can see crossed. people's feet, which seems like not a That's professional strange. stadium. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. A, a couple things I've noticed about these this 1988 top set. I like the way that the batter is superimposed over the writing of Rangers. On this card, you have Pete's bat is in front of the name Rangers. So you have guys kind of dropped in there, regardless of where the writing is of the name across the top. You just have a guy superimposed on top of it. And I think that's a good look. It gives it kind of a little bit of a 3D image. Another thing I've noticed, particularly on these Rangers cards, there's a lot of batters in action. And we saw this on Gino Petrali's card. The Rangers, whoever was taking their photos, liked to get batters in action, which also means you don't get a full face. Yeah. And in looking through all of the Rangers cards recently uh, from the 88 set, when you're looking at, say, a Steve Bouchelle or a Pete Incavilia, you see kind of half of their face because of the way that the, the photographer was taking the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say you see their full crotch, but only half of their <laughs> face. <laughs> it's nice up and close. We'll look at some later cards of Pete, and he's got a very good mullet and some very good <laughs> facial hair, particularly in his cards with the Phillies in the early 90s. Now let's look at the back of the card. And, and David, this the back of this card does not look like any other that we've seen so far in this series because... Even when we had have had rookies, uh, rookie cards on the series, there's minor league stats on here. Here there's none. I mean, it's just the 86 Rangers and the 87 Rangers stats. And there's lots of room for fun facts. So starting at the top, so Pete is 6'1", 220. That right there tells you a lot as far as his stature as an, as an athlete. And then born... April 2nd, 64, in Pebble Beach, California, and home Arlington, Texas. When you talk about Pete's stature, that kind of does go back to, I don't know why I call them this, but I call them like those guys. And guys like Steve Balboni and Rob Deere and just big dudes who struck out 150 plus times would also hit 30 home runs. And these are really the, the three true outcome guys. And Pete Incavilia was one of those homers, strikeouts, and walks, a ton of them. In fact, as you'll see on the back of this card, Pete led the league in strikeouts as a rookie in 1986 with 185 strikeouts. 
Wow. So, but he also hit 30 home runs. And you'll, you'll see from the fun facts, a lot of those facts are related to his first grand slam, first two home run game. So a lot of power numbers. Yeah, let's important. just go through his first three run major league game, April 22nd, 1986. His first big league stolen base. His first major league grand slam. His first two home run major league game. No other players have this kind of level of the fun fact. And then also you have the This Way to the Clubhouse, which talks about how Pete was traded by the Expos to the Rangers for pitcher Bob Sebra and infielder Jim Anderson on November 2nd, 1985. That also helps to explain the non-existence of minor league stats Mm. and gets us into the Incavelia rule. Mm. So let's go back to his college days. So as you know, I grew up in Kansas, which and Kansas and Kansas State were both big part of the Big 8 conference, which is what it was called back then. It's now the Big 12. Oklahoma and Oklahoma State were also part of that, including, let's see, top of my head, Nebraska, Colorado, Missouri, and Iowa State, I think, filled out the Big 8. So tell us about Pete Incavelia, big man on campus in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Yeah, Pete was the biggest man in college baseball in the 80s. And Pete was also named Player of the Century by Baseball America in 1999. So Pete grew up in Monterey, California. We talked about him being born in Pebble Beach. He went to Monterey High School and out of high school was drafted by the Giants in the 10th round. But he went to Oklahoma State instead. And he went on to have one of the most ridiculous offensive careers in college baseball. Not only was he selected in 1999 as the player of the century, he was also, in 2016, voted the top college baseball player of all time. Second in that voting was Robin Ventura, also of Oklahoma State, also of getting noogied by Nolan <laughs> fame. Um, there is a really good video that is nine minutes long. So if you have nine minutes to spend watching college Pete Incavilia videos on MLB.com that shows him just launching baseballs. In, in watching him, there are a lot of bat flips, standing to watch and watch the flight of a home run. And he was seen as a, a bit of an arrogant player. And there's a story that he told about taking batting practice. And he was kind of a, became almost a part of the show, was to go to the game and watch Pete Incavilia take batting practice. So he's taking batting practice against uh, the University of Texas. And the players in the opposing dugout are watching him hit 450, 500 foot batting practice home runs and maybe mockingly saying, ooh. And he dropped his bat, went to the, to the dugout, and challenged any of them or all of them at once to a fight. <laughs> so he clearly had a bit of arrogance and also the power to back it up on the field. From the way that I remember Pete Incavilia as a major league player, I remember him being powerful but not necessarily athletic. As we said before, 6'1", 220, but he was also incredibly strong. I've read that he was bench pressing 500 pounds as a rookie. 
so there was clearly a question about whether Pete was on the juice, and we'll get to that later on. But in this video, there's also a ton of speed and hustle. So he comes to Oklahoma State in 83. He hits 371 as a freshman, hitting 23 home runs. I think that that was a record, 23 home runs as a freshman. Sophomore returns and hits 29 home runs in 352, which broke his own record. And then he returns in his junior season to have maybe the most impressive offensive season in NCAA history, set NCAA single season records for home runs with 48, RBIs with 143, total bases with 285, and his slugging percentage was 1.140. He, <laughs> yes. he hit 464 and stole 14 bases. Incavilia had 250 at-bats and 80 walks, which don't count as at-bats. But of the 250 times where, where he didn't walk, 48 of those times he hit a home run. <laughs> so it's... So like one out of every five times that he didn't, that there was actually an at bat, he hit a home run. It is amazing. So yeah, he was the All-American all three seasons that he was at Oklahoma State. Those home runs, RBIs, total bases are all records. In his career, he hit 100 home runs in three seasons. So one of the first things that you find when you're searching for Pete Incavilia is Pete Incavilia holds unbreakable NCAA records. A few guys have come within 20 or so home runs of 100, but nobody's really come close uh, since even 2007. A guy named Matt Laporta ended his career with 74 home runs. There's a few reasons for that, the unbreakability of this record. One is the bat rules that have been changed in the NCAA. In the major leagues, everyone has to use a wooden bat. Since 1974, the NCAA has allowed aluminum and other bats, partially due to economic costs, and having to replace that many bats was expensive for a college. So they introduced aluminum bats in 1974. In 1986, which was the year after Incavilia was drafted into the major leagues, the NCAA imposed a lower limit on the weight of a bat. So that could change the bat speed velocity. They then later introduced other rules concerning the something called the BESR, the ball exit speed ratio in 1999. And then in 2009 instituted a composite bat ban and then something else called the BBCOR standard. Interestingly, this BBCOR standard brings us to our second fun neighbor, uh, Dr. Alan Nathan was involved in that. And you'll remember. Oh, yes. Yeah. From the University of Illinois. Yes. Dr. Alan Nathan, known to this podcast as a physicist doing baseball research, which is, I think, a great use of physics. I've learned recently that he's pretty active on Twitter and gets mm -hmm. into physics-based arguments about baseball with people. So that's fun and confusing for me to read. But this BBCOR standard involves testing of bats and effectively requires that non-wooden bats should produce batted ball speeds similar to wooden bats. So creating okay. some consistency with Major League Baseball. 
And so what I would pick up from that then, David, is these changes would make it extremely unlikely since Incavelia was setting these records with aluminum bats that were basically nuclear powered and that are no longer street legal in the NCAA, that there's no way someone's going to touch it. It would be really difficult to see a guy break that unless maybe he played all four seasons. Then you might have a total that's that's more, but you would have to hit 25 home runs a season. And it's very rare to even see 30 home runs in a season now in mm-hmm. college. So wrapping up Inky's college career, drafted in the first round by the Expos and refused to go to the minors. I wanted to go straight to the majors. So David, how did that come to be? Matt, in that 1985 draft, Incavilia goes number eight. Some of the guys who go ahead of him in that draft, BJ Serhoff was the number one player in that draft. Will Clark was number two. Barry Larkin was number four, Hall of Famer. Number six was Barry Bonds. So really, this might have been the best draft in Major League history. Based on wins above replacement, it is the best draft in in Major League history. It helps when you have Barry Bonds in that draft. Uh, That helps those numbers. But Pete Incavilia was really, as we said, just had an incredible college career and was going to go to the pros. So he is picked with the number eight pick in the draft by the Expos. And there's a long negotiation process. So the draft is in June, and as we said before, he was traded in November. And Matt, as you also pointed out, he never played in the minors. It's interesting in some of these retrospectives of Pete's career, they talk about this like, this is an amazing feat. that, And it was, if you look at it in, in terms of only four or five players up to that point had gone straight from college or amateur baseball into the major leagues, but that was part of the negotiation. Pete didn't want to play in the minors, so he negotiated with the Expos, told them, I'm, I want to come straight to the pros. The Expos didn't want to do that. They wanted him to get some reps in the minor leagues, work his way up, and maybe, you know, learn to hit a curveball, um, <laughs> not strike out 185 times in a season. But in, in the course of this negotiation, he just threatened to wait until the next season and say, you know what, I'll just wait and get drafted again next year unless you guys trade me. So he never signed with the Expos. On November 2nd, 1985, he got his wish, was traded to the Rangers for Bob Sebra and infielder Jim Anderson. Sebra went on to play a couple seasons with the Expos, but didn't do much. And Incavilia got a $175,000 signing bonus to play with the Rangers. This led to something that you referenced earlier, Matt, the Incavelia rule, another good name for a band. Mm -hmm. And that rule was implemented, and it said that a player could not be traded until one year after signing a contract with a major league team. The fear among major league teams and the management of major league baseball was that teams wouldn't sign their draft picks because they didn't want to pay big bonuses, so they would just trade them away. And it would kind of defeat the purpose of the draft of bringing some parity by allowing bad teams to pick good young players and build up their their rosters. The other piece of this is that drafted players would just ask for ridiculous bonuses or demand a trade, and it would give them more leverage in the negotiation process. 
This rule was in place from 1985 until 2015. As we know with a lot of the rules in baseball, teams found ways around it. They would use players to be named later and then later name these drafted players and send them away. They, they figured out loopholes around the rule. And so they finally got rid of this rule in 2015. But for a long time, if nothing else, Pete's name was in, in the major league annals as, uh, as the Incavelia rule. So was he able to keep up that power, that dominating power in 86 and 1987 when he came into the big leagues? Matt, in spring training of 86, he comes in and the expectation is this guy is going to be something great. In spring training, he hit a ball through the wall. <laughs> His first spring training batting practice session, he hit a ball through the outfield wall. <laughs> and so there's these kind of tall tale stories of him in spring training. He hit 30 home runs as a rookie in 1986. So we, they got what they expected as far as power numbers. Maybe he could have used some extra time in the minors because he struck out 185 times. When we go to the back of the card, you, you do notice they, they italicize league leaders. The only thing italicized on this is 185 <laughs> strikeouts in 1986. In 87, he comes back, hits 27 home runs, so another good home run year. Strikes out 168 times, so slightly better. Still good enough for second in strikeouts with 168 in 1987. One thing I would add is that I, I do remember... Incavilia and thinking that he was destined for some kind of greatness because he was a 1987 Tops All-Star mm. rookie. And as we discussed with Matt Noakes, those were the cards where you looked at him and you, you saw that little trophy. The other guys in that 1987 All-Star rookie team, one of the other outfielders was Jose Canseco, also um, Corey Snyder, another power hitter with a lot of strikeouts, and Danny Tartable who played for the Seattle Mariners. So that 87 all-star rookie team, including Incavelia in there with his 30 home runs, it made him seem like he was going to be a power hitter for a long time. Now, after 1987, what happened to Inky? He had a few more seasons with the Rangers. He played in Texas until 1990. He averaged 25 home runs a season, struck out a ton, and he ended up being released by the Texas Rangers in 1990. He signs with the Tigers in 91 and then was granted free agency after that 1991 season. Signed by the Astros. He was fine for the Astros. <laughs> granted free agency in 92 after that season with the Astros. Goes to the Phillies in 93. So this is where he meets up with our good friend Lenny Dykstra Mitch Williams, John Crook, Darren Dalton, and the crew. And he plays on that 93 Phillies team that went from worst in 1992 to first place in 1993, and they lose in the World Series. And he had a pretty solid Pete Incavelia season. Started 80-plus games. He hit 24 home runs and had 89 RBIs, and also hit 274. And I've, I see that you've entered into evidence here. A picture from the 93 season. Uh, this is some other baseball card. This is the 1994 Fleer. 
yeah, Pete's got a mullet. He looks big. He looks real big. He looks... Yes. If he was 6'1", 220, and the other one, he's 40 pounds bigger. Like, his <laughs> his leg, his his thighs are enormous. He's a, he's a big boy in this one. So, David... Let's let's transition to pranks because I see that Pete is a bit of a prankster. In fact, I believe we see something from the same athletic article about the hot foot that we mentioned earlier with Burt Blylevin. And that is that Pete Incavelia, former outfielder with the Rangers and Phillies, carried around a squeezable mustard bottle filled with alcohol, would walk by a teammate squirt alcohol on his shoe and toss a match. Now, that's a very different kind of method and technique to the hot foot than we saw with Bert. Yeah, that more seems like he's walking around with a flamethrower. <laughs> Instead of attaching, you know, chewing gum and sticking a book of matches on that and then lighting one and yeah. Wasn't there a story about Bert crawling underneath? <laughs> yes. You know, Inky seems like more of a direct approach to the hot foot. He's just going to whiz fire on you. And Matt, there, along with the hot foot, there was another prank that seemed more like bullying than a prank. <laughs> um, more like a hazing exercise than a prank. And it was something called the three-man lift. When Incavelia was with the Astros, his teammates said that Inky introduced the three-man lift which was a prank on unsuspecting rookies. And the way that he would do this prank is that he would he would bet. He would just kind of out of, out of the blue say, I bet you I could lift three guys at the same time. Some other players who were in on the prank would come in and say like, I'll, I'll take that bet, I'll take that bet. And then he would pick players that he was going to lift. The one that... They said that he picked was Steve Finley. So Steve Finley at one point was kind of a skinny outfielder for the Astros. He was subject to this three-man lift. So he, he's supposed to lay down on the ground between two other players. They lock arms, and then Incavelia is going to lift them up. So they get on the floor, and they lock arms. Finley's trapped in the middle. The rest of the team, knowing the prank come in with shaving cream, baby oil, powder to dry your hands, and just douse him. <laughs> he said that he had been the victim of this at one point as well when he was a rookie. Mm. So he was passing, passing the, the torch. Let's wrap up the rest of Inky's career then and then get into where he is now. After the 93 season where Inky plays in the World Series. He didn't play well in the playoffs or the World Series. Comes back for the 94 season. He injures himself, crashing into a wall in the outfield, playing his adventurous form of defense. And then the strike happens, and he went to Japan, where he joined the Chibalote Marines, our favorite Japanese baseball team. He had a rough time in Japan, he only hit 181, and he struck out 74 times in 243 at-bats. So he had a rough go of it in Japan. He came back to the States, bounced around a little bit, played for the Phillies, Orioles, Yankees, Tigers, and Houston before retiring in 1998. 
He ended his career with a two forty six average, mm. 206 home runs, 655 RBIs, and 1,277 strikeouts <laughs> in 4,233 at-bats. But interestingly, when Pete retired, he was the career leader in home runs and RBIs for guys with last names starting with I. Okay, well, there you go. That's good. So top of that list uh, until he was surpassed. So Raul Labanez passed him <laughs> in both of those categories. But for a time, not only was Pete the best player ever in college, but he was the best I player in Major League <laughs> Baseball. Well, that is amazing. And where is <laughs> and where is he now? Pete tried a couple comebacks. He played in the Astros minor league system in 99 and attempted a comeback at 38 in the Padres minor league system. I've also found here that Pete was a youth hockey coach for his kid's team until he was banned from being a hockey coach for some <laughs> loud outbursts on the bench, including one where a police complaint was filed by another parent. <laughs> That's not a good sign. No, not good. Looking at that 1994 Fleer card, and I think I sent you another 1994 Upper Deck card, Pete, with his mullet and mustache, being a very large man, he looks like an angry hockey dad. <laughs> and he was mad that his son was hit in the back before scoring a goal, and Pete came down and started screaming at the opposing coach. This coach was shaken because, and I'm reading from a news article, Pete was, quote, a good-sized man. <laughs> it's generous. And was screaming at this guy. So Pete was banned from attending these games for a little while. And, yeah, not a good look to be shouting obscenities and maybe threatening children. <laughs> not at all. However, Pete did turn this around and is back on the bench, maybe not coaching youth hockey, but is a coach in the independent leagues of, of baseball. He started his coaching career in the minor leagues as a hitting coach with Detroit and had a pretty successful run and continues to have a successful run in the independent leagues. He started it with the Grand Prairie Air Hogs. Mm, okay. I know Grand Prairie. I've, uh, I used to have family that lived in Grand Prairie, so I've been to Grand Prairie, Texas. Matt, have you seen any hogs, air or otherwise? I, I don't recall seeing any hogs and certainly none that were airborne. <clears throat> <laughs> I think that's the first spit take in the yep. 1988 Tops recording. Uh, I, don't, I don't have anything else on the air hogs, but he then went to the Laredo Lemurs. So I don't know if you've been to Laredo. Never been to Laredo. Any, or seen any lemurs. But when he was with the lemurs, Pete, acknowledged that he said he got it backwards that when he was a, a player he went right to the top and now he's paying his dues and he started kind of coaching in these lower divisions and i think in a lot of these episodes we talk about guys coaching it in places where unless you have family there you've never visited so i've never been to laredo or grand prairie but but Pete has. Pete was very successful with the Laredo Lemurs and won a championship in Laredo in 2015, an independent league championship. Pete then went to the Sugarland Skeeters. Mm -hmm. In the Houston area. 
Sugarland, I've I've never been. Are there Skeeters? Yes, there are Skeeters in Houston. Uh, very big ones. Skeeter being the colloquial term for a mosquito. There are lots of Skeeters in Southeast Texas. In this position with the Skeeters, he took over for other 1988 legend Gary Gaetti, mm. who had been the coach with Sugarland. And in that first season, 2018, they won an Atlantic League championship, and Inky was the manager of the year. So pretty good run. All right. In 2019, they made the playoffs again. And now, in 2020, due to COVID, they have uh, limited it to a four-team league, of which three of those teams are managed by guys who are depicted in the 1988 top set. Wow. Uh, so you have Inky coaching the Skeeters. You also have coaches Roger Clemens and Greg Swindell, who was with the Indians in 88. And I also see here you've entered into evidence a listing from eBay the Sugarland Skeeters Game of Thrones Pete Incavilia bobblehead. So I'm going to pull that up here on the Jumbotron. And we'll have this in the show notes for people. As often happens in minor league baseball, there are fun promotions. And it looks like here you've got a promotional bobblehead doll of Pete Incavilia sitting on the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms. He does not have a sword in his hand. He has a baseball bat. He looks very comfortable on the Iron Throne. Uh, I'm not sure which house he would have come from, because uh, I don't think Incavelia was a traditional house. He's from the in House the, of Skeeter. From the House House Skeeter. In this depiction, he also... I, I'm wearing my glasses today. We have very similar glasses, so Pete's got yeah, a good style uh, going. <laughs> um, the mustache looks good. There's no mullet <laughs> visible in this bobblehead. This is not 1993 Phillies Macho Row Pete. This is older, yep. grown-up Pete. Nope, but this uh, bobblehead is still available for $12, and so we will put a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, Matt, maybe to close this out, Pete, while not on the Major League Baseball Iron Throne, is still widely regarded as being the ruler of college baseball. And he is a benevolent king. Well, a great player. David, I wish you good fortune in the 780 cards to come. That is enough Game of Thrones. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, gripes, complaints, suggestions, or if you'd like to be on the 1988 Tops podcast, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Tops1998 or by email at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 